Well, good morning, church. Good morning. Good to see you all. Uh, Come on in. This is where uh, we're going to spend our time together this morning in worshiping the Lord. That is why we have gathered here. We thank you for joining us at Trinity Bible Church this morning. We also say a special welcome to all of our friends and family that are joining us online through our live stream. Remember, that's always a great tool and an option if you are away or if you are home not feeling well, that you can uh, join us virtually. Just go to our website, trinityallenwood.com, and just click view here, and you'll get to uh, participate and, and enjoy. And so, again, we say welcome on this beautiful Sunday morning. Again, it is Memorial Day weekend, and if you forgot, you were reminded by all the traffic, right? So we praise God. Remember, as we always say, when you're in traffic, remember, you are not in traffic, you are traffic, because you're part of it. Let's remember that. Okay. Um, but we have gathered to worship our Lord. You know, um, 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples, and he continued to teach them and to prepare them for the coming Holy Spirit that he would send to them. And after those 40 days after the resurrection, He took them out to the Mount of Olives, and he told them to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. And then he blessed them, and then Jesus ascended back to heaven to the Father. And when he did, he ascended back to glory, heaven, where he now intercedes for us as our great high priest. This is a reading from the book of Acts in chapter 1, about that event. So when they had gathered together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and they said, Men of Galilee, 
Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go up to heaven. Jesus, he came to suffer, to die, but then he rose again from the dead on the third day. And that same power that raised Jesus from the dead raised him on that day to heaven and seated him at the right hand of God where he now lives to intercede on our behalf. So this morning in our time of worship, let us come before God with all confidence before his throne of grace through the loving intercession of our risen Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand and I will pray us into a time of worship through song. Father God, in the name of Jesus, we offer ourselves now to you in worship. In this time of worship through song, may we keep our eyes focused on you, Lord Jesus, for you alone are worthy. We are your church. We pray that you return to us soon, just as you ascended to heaven. We know you will come back to bring us into glory. So we worship you now and celebrate our new life in you. We pray as always in the name of Jesus. Amen. Church, let's worship and celebrate together. God, we wait, your coming. 
so come, Lord Jesus,
Take a moment to say good morning to somebody next to you. Say good morning in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, if we can uh, make our way back to our seats, uh, we'll get to have some more time of fellowship after service. Uh, it's also a great reminder that uh, we do offer coffee fellowship, 9.45 every Sunday morning, and so make sure you take advantage of that. You can come early before service. At 9.45, we have coffee and a little breakfast uh, served for you, so take advantage of that. Come a little early. You can catch up with some friends that you haven't seen in a week or longer and uh, just get a head start on the, the day of worship and the day of fellowship. Um, this morning we do have a uh, guest speaker, and before I introduce him, I uh, just wanted to, of course, um, recognize that this is Memorial Day weekend and uh, what that actually represents. This is one of a few um, federal holidays that uh, we... Um, we remember and we celebrate, we remember um, the sacrifices of the men and women in military for the freedoms that we enjoy. And so it would be right and appropriate for us to recognize their service now, uh, but Memor Memorial Day is especially for those who have fallen in the line of duty. And so um, I would like to pray and then we'll have a moment of silence just in memory of our men and women in the military who have given the ultimate sacrifice for us. You know, John 15, 13 says, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, as we seek and follow you, we pray your mighty hand of blessing on our nation. All those in authority over us, 
but especially today, our military and all of their families. We lift up all the family and friends of our fallen men and women in uniform. We pray your peace, the only peace that matters, your peace, that would guard them and guide them, would continue to give those families hope. Help them remember the sacrifices of their loved ones, not only, of course, with sorrow, but with tears of pride and understanding, knowing that their loved ones did not die in vain, but helped to secure our precious liberties for yet another generation. But we thank you, Father, for the freedoms that we have as Christians in this country, but help us to always remember, as we do right now, the cost of that freedom. We always remember the ultimate cost of freedom, freedom in Jesus Christ for the life that he gave. But let us never forget the bravery of the women and men who have gone before us, who served with honor and great courage, giving the greatest of all sacrifices. We pray in your name. Amen. Let's have a moment of silence in their memory. Thank you. Well, this morning, it is a great privilege to welcome uh, good friends, Dr. Greg Haig and his wife, Linda. They have been friends of ours uh, for many years. Um, Dr. Haig is the vice president and program director of the Charles Feinberg Center for Messianic Jewish Studies in New York City. That's a long title. And uh, he's got quite a few others as well. He has been with Chosen People Ministries for many years as well but serves as the Feinberg Center as his main responsibilities. Um, the Feinberg Center, if you're not familiar with it, it offers an accredited uh, Master of Divinity, which is like a seminary degree, with an emphasis in Messianic Jewish studies. And this unique program is designed to train uh, all those men and women with a calling to full-time Jewish ministry as Messianic congregational leaders and outreach workers and educators. Um, Dr. Haig was also the senior pastor of Mountainside Chapel in Mountainside, New Jersey for almost 20 years, which is where I met him. Uh, he has also uh, been a great mentor over the years, uh, introduced uh, the um, importance of studying deep the scriptures and the theology of our God, but uh, most importantly, a good friend. Uh, his wife, Linda, has joined him today. Um, Dr. Haig has been here numerous times, but Linda has joined him today, and she is a counselor at her church and also counsels uh, those at uh, Chosen People Ministries. And so it's a privilege to welcome you back. So Dr. Haig, would you come and, and uh, share what the Lord has put on your heart this morning? We just give a round of applause for Dr. Haig. Thank you. Do I come up first or you come yep. down first? Okay. Wouldn't want to uh, collide <laughs> like two sumo wrestlers. <laughs> Both of them, thank you. So good to be with you again. I mean, really, I love this place. Uh, it, the worship is so uh, genuine and uh, it's just a very comfortable place to be in. 
I get a feeling though that something is different, like it extends all the way back to the back now. What did you do? You took a wall out, okay. All right, well, it makes it look nice and roomy and inviting and uh, wish all of you could be sitting at tables and eating. That would be good. Well, uh, I would like to pray before we begin. Uh, I've chosen a passage today that uh, is one of my favorite passages. I'll tell you why as we go through, but but let's ask the Lord's blessing on on us. Uh, and keep in mind that uh, John in the Johannine epistles and First uh, John says that we have received an anointing. We're going to be talking about the anointed Savior in a moment, the Messiah. But we have received an anointing. The only place that is used in the New Testament has to do with the knowledge that we have received through the anointing of God. So he has given us, by the Spirit of God, the ability to understand Scripture in ways that uh, people who don't have the Spirit of God uh, cannot do. So let's keep that in mind as we pray. Father, we are thankful that you've brought us to this particular moment in our personal histories. Thank you that we are alive because... uh, You're the one who gives us every breath that we take. Uh, We acknowledge to you, Father, that uh, you've numbered our days. You've given us uh, a clear insight to know that um, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. So for the perspective we have on all of life, we thank you. And we thank you that it's through the anointing of the Spirit of God in our hearts. Those of us who have trusted Yeshua uh, for salvation, we are so thankful that we uh, have been graced uh, by a a certain amount of knowledge. Thank you too, Father, that we don't know it all, although sometimes we act like we do. Uh, We don't know it all, and there's so much of a mystery about you and about your dealings with mankind, and uh, we can't even enter into it because our minds are too puny. But we thank you that you've given us the knowledge that we do have, and we, we pray that we would... Uh, heed the admonition in Deuteronomy that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed to us belong to us and our children forever. So may we be faithful in proclaiming the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we be true in living for him through uh, uh, submitting our wills to the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. May we, uh, even in this hour, uh, commit our minds and our hearts to the study of the word. I ask you that each one who is here would derive some benefit from having uh, listened to what I have to say, and I pray that you will guide uh, what I have to say uh, again by your Spirit. So we thank you for this communion of the believers. We thank you for what is supposed to happen at a time like this. May it happen today. In uh, Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay. Uh, What is your favorite uh, sermon of Jesus's? We have one. Sermon on the Mount. Most people say Sermon on the Mount, or is there another one that comes to mind? Maybe the Upper Room Discourse, although it wasn't to a congregation per se. Neither was the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount was actually pretty edgy. You know, he was setting the stage for uh, how imperfect we are and how we cannot fulfill the law, so we must turn to him for salvation. He was saying, this is, uh, this is what I expect. Uh, I want you to be perfect as I am perfect. Well, uh, you know, I, I have my favorite passage uh, as far as a, a, a message that he gives, and it's in a synagogue. He spoke in the synagogues a great deal, but the one we're going to look at today is the beginning of his ministry. Not quite the beginning, but it's the first time that he stands in a synagogue and, and preaches. 
Uh, before this, he's been resurrected from the dead. He's been going around and doing various things, some miracles. Uh, the wedding feast at Cana, he's turned the water into wine already. He's met with Nicodemus in Jerusalem. And he's given that great message that we have preserved for us in uh, the book of John. But Luke has a different way of presenting uh, the first message of Jesus. And I just think it's fantastic. It's as though we were sitting here and all of a sudden, Jesus walks through the door. He walks down the aisle and he says, move over, Greg. I think I can handle this. And he comes up and he reads the text. And then instead of leaving the Bema, the seat, he, he doesn't go down and take his seat with the congregation. He takes a, a seat here. And probably I should have sat here just to demonstrate. But rabbis always sit when they teach. And sometimes the Talmudim, the students, will stand throughout the whole lecture. We've got it kind of reversed, I guess. I don't know. But in any case, that's what Jesus does in this, uh, this particular synagogue that he comes to. He's already set up his headquarters in uh, Capernaum. And he's going to go back to Capernaum after he makes this visit to his hometown. So the setting is really unique. And you have to use your imagination a little bit. Uh, maybe we could show uh, the chosen uh, to give you that uh, flavor. I don't know. But it's, it's when he, um, he, he kind of appears at the synagogue of his youth. He grew up going to services every week, every Shabbat. He was in this particular place. And then uh, he, uh, he makes a statement at the beginning of his public proclamation ministry that we're going to uh, read today. So let's read it first. Uh, I think it, I have it on the slides if I'm not mistaken. <clears throat> this might be a little bit uh, difficult, but I think I have the passage. And you can turn to it in your Bibles as well. It's Luke chapter 4. Yeah, it's here. So let's just read it together. Um, <laughs> and Jesus returned to Galilee. And remember, he had been doing some other things elsewhere. But he returns to Galilee. And he does so in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread throughout all of the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. So this is in the height of his early popularity. He's been doing some things that nobody else has ever done. He's been saying some things that nobody else has ever said. And he's done so in his own authority. So he is quite the, um, the interesting one, to put it mildly. But he comes and he begins teaching. The, the word implies that he was doing this on a regular basis. And by the way, let me just say something in, before we go on. And, and that is, Jesus had a teaching ministry. He didn't just have a storytelling ministry. So we don't want to make the mistake of believing that he only taught by parables. He did exposition as well, especially after his resurrection. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, I, I, I misspoke early on, didn't I? I said this is after his resurrection. No, this is the beginning of his ministry, his earthly ministry. Anyway, he's uh, going into the synagogue and he's teaching, he's praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he stood up to read the scroll, R rolled out, and he was reading the scroll. Next slide. 
And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are the oppressed, and to pro proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now just keep in mind, we'll, we're going to go through some other slides to explain this a bit, but that was Isaiah 61, the first verse of Isaiah 61, not the second, which we'll get to in a moment. But going forward, let's finish reading this in verse 20. It says, he closed the book and he gave it to the assistant who was there to open and hold the book, I suppose. He gave it over to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. Can you imagine this? A famous rabbi coming in, let's say it's a Billy Graham or someone that everybody knows about, but have never heard him speak perhaps in person. He walks in, he stands up, he reads a text of scripture, and then he sits down and taking the posture of one who teaches the teaching rabbi. And everybody is, uh, can I use the word stoked here? I don't know what it means. But in California, they say stoked, used to. But he is so impressive in his appearance, I think, and in his I don't know how to describe it, just in his, his demeanor. He spoke with authority. He read with authority. He probably stood up and sat down with authority because he was the Son of God. And all eyes were just fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, well, here's the message that comes at the end of the reading of the Torah, or the end, end of the reading of the uh, Tanakh, the message. He says, listen, folks, today, this very scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What pride. Unbelievable that he would say something like that. That I'm the one this passage is talking about. This is the only place in Luke where he uh, does such a thing, except in the last uh, uh, appearance to the men on the road to Emmaus, where he's explaining that all of the scriptures, the entire, the Torah, the writings, the prophets, all of them, point toward him and speak of him. And uh, so these two things are, it's called an inclusio. It's the idea of book, bookends, uh, you know, at the beginning of his ministry and at the close of his ministry. He's saying the scriptures talk about me. And he does it here. So he says, uh, uh, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him. All of them were wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. Now stop right there because we need to think about these words for just a moment. This is one of the reasons I like this passage. He's just read about the anointed Messiah who is going to come and minister to his people. He's going to minister to them in very unique ways. He's going to take away the suffering. He's going to do things that no one else could possibly do because he is the miracle working Messiah. And in all of this speech that he gives, and I'm sure we have a very brief portion of it, I wish I could have been there, don't you? Sitting in that synagogue and listening, or standing in that synagogue, whatever, and listening to these gracious words that are falling from his lips. So keep in mind, this is the passage where it's gracious words that he speaks. 
And keep in mind also that sometimes when we are most gracious in our presentation of salvation, well, that's when the opposition seems to be the greatest as well. So let's go on. They were all speaking well of him. They thought, well, these are wonderful words and these words of grace are falling from his lips. But then they stop and they say, well, is this not Joseph's son? You can see a little bit of skepticism coming in. Verse 23, and he said to them, no doubt, you'll probably quote the prophet to me or the proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, so that means that they probably had heard that he had been doing miracles in Capernaum. Whatever you did there, we'd like you to do here. I mean, this is, this is your hometown. Shouldn't you be a miracle-working uh, rabbi here as well? And so they're asking him to show them that he's the Messiah. I guess that's expected, but it shows that they have some doubt as to who he really is. Uh, I think, go back. I don't think we did. We read the whole thing. Yes, we did. Next slide. Thank you, Willie. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his own hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, six months when a great famine came over all of the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, none of those widows, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And then there's another occasion as well. He says, there were many lepers in Israel all over the, the, the land in the time, but uh, Elisha, the prophet, was the one who spoke to only one. None of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian, another Gentile. So uh, I'll say more about this in just a few moments. But here's the uh, passage. This is the passage that we're, we're focusing on. Uh, it ends in the following manner. Next slide. All of the people in the synagogue. What? I must have made a mistake in preparing this slide. Because, I mean, weren't they praising him? What, weren't they listening to these gracious words? But he mentions the salvation of Gentiles. And it says, all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and they drove him out of the city. They led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down off the cliff. And then we have these wonderful words. By the way, I've stood on that brow of the hill. I've looked over the cliff. Linda and I have, and uh, you feel the danger almost. But passing through their midst, he went his way. Well, I don't know exactly what that means. We'll try to give a, an idea later on, perhaps. All right, well, uh, as far as the slides are concerned, then, let's take a look at the, the next slide, and it will be uh, an overview. If you were to look at this and divide it up into various parts, you would see that there is a, a spiritual dimension to this uh, Messiah. We see him as a, a, a spirit-filled or a spirit-controlled Messiah. Secondly, we're going to see a religious observance. We can't miss that. He was there in the synagogue, wasn't he? Thirdly, we're going to notice that he was, he was a, 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 giving a pointed message. When I say pointed, I don't know how much more pointed you could be than to say, I am he. 
And then also there's an irrational opposition, which we just read about. And finally, I think it's finally, a miraculous escape. So those are the components, I think, of this passage, if you wanted to just think it through for the purpose of teaching. But let's read uh, also that the, uh, I'm going to go through each one of these points for you. First of all, the spiritual dimension. Uh, this means that we have a spirit-filled Messiah. Now, um, I choose that word carefully, uh, the filling of the Spirit of God. Uh, you can go on to the next slide. The filling of the Spirit of God. Oh, the guaranteed return comes later. Next slide. Uh, the filling of the Spirit of God takes place, I think, post-Pentecost. That is the permanent dwelling of the Spirit of God in the lives of believers. That's the uh, way that we understand the work of the Spirit throughout the Bible. Uh, prior to the uh, coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, there seemed to be a, a very active work of the divine presence. He came upon various ones to do various tasks. Uh, the prophets, the kings, the craftsmen of the, temp the tabernacle. You, you know all of those references probably. But there was something that radically changed at the time of Pentecost. Well, now we're talking about the Messiah. And it says simply that he... Uh, return to the Gal Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So this is somehow a dynamic that was working within the humanity of our Lord. Now, I don't know how else to say it, but it seems like, especially in Luke, there is a treatment of Jesus that is slightly different in that he, uh, you may or may not know, but one of the primary themes of his gospel is to show Jesus as a perfect man. Uh, he's speaking to the Gentile world primarily. And he's trying to present Jesus in his perfect humanity. Well, the humanity of Jesus, his compassion, his feelings, uh, his uh, ability, uh, his uh, so-called inability at times, it seems, are uh, focused upon by, by Luke. So you have to ask, why did Luke say that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness in the previous, uh, uh, the, the previous passage? It says the Spirit is the one who led him into the wilderness. And it's the Spirit of God who uh, empowered him and is empowering him here. Uh, and so wh what is it about it? I'd like to say something to you, and, and Keith, this is probably controversial, and I don't care. But you can clean up the mess after I leave. So next week you're on. You know, there is a theological concern here that I want to point out. And it comes under the heading of uh, this question. Was Jesus uh, able not to sin or not able to sin? I don't want to go, but think about it with me for a moment. Was Jesus able not to sin or not able to sin? Some people would say that if you say something like Jesus was able not to sin, that means he could have sinned. And others, and others will say, well, you, that, therefore you can't say that. We can only say he was not able to sin because he's God. But I think we're forgetting something. We're forgetting this wonderful hypostatic union in which deity and humanity is welded together in inseparable, in an inseparable manner. So Jesus, I like to say, in his humanity was able not to sin because in his humanity, it was the spirit of God who filled him, controlled him, baptized him. If whatever you want to say, there was such a unity between the two persons of the Godhead, 
the Son and the Spirit, that he was able not to sin, even in his humanity. Now, in our humanity, we are uh, prone to sin. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, right? So, in our humanity, it's a different thing, but in his humanity, he was able by the power of the Spirit not to sin. Now, he never would have sinned because he is not able to sin either because of his deity. I hope that wasn't too uh, heavy for you, but it's, it's called the impeccability of Christ, the sinlessness, sinlessness of the Savior. And it, 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 it applies to this passage because, guess what? The same Spirit of God that leads us into situations where we must decide to obey God rather than men, or to follow the teachings of the scriptures, the same spirit gives us the enablement in our humanity as well. Furthermore, he's preaching in the power of the spirit. Now, I can't even approach that. The greatest preacher on earth could never approach the ability Jesus had to, to speak. <laughs> so don't get me wrong. But it's the same spirit who indwells every one of you. So don't, don't, uh, don't tell me you, you, you can't present the truth of God to your neighbors, even the Jewish people who are around this area now. Don't tell me you can't do that because it's the same power that indwells you. So look at this for a moment. It's a, a spirit-filled Messiah. So he has power. As a spirit-filled uh, Messiah, he has growing recognition, growing popularity. And it seems to me that when it says this in verse, one, verse 14, he, he went to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district and he began teaching in their synagogues and he was praised by all. Something very special about that. It means that those who are proclaiming the truth of God's word have a special ability and anointing, as we said before. It's not like the anointing that some extremists call it, but rather it is an anointing that is invisible perhaps, but a, a, a available uh, as well. All right, so that's the initial uh, thing that we would notice is the spiritual dimension. Let's notice also that there's a religious observ uh, observance here. So that's the next slide. Uh, what are the excuses that we uh, normally give for not uh, observing. Now, you're all here, so I know I'm preaching to the choir, so forget what I say, but you can tell this to the other people who aren't here for some reason or not. Uh, I ran, ran across this from Daryl Bach. It says, just imagine the reasons given today for not attending the worship services in the church. We got a lot of reasons with COVID, don't we? And they're probably legitimate. Hypocrisy abounds in the church, some say. Time is way too precious to spend on Sunday mornings in the church. Or there's plenty of Christian training available in books or in the media. Boy, that's for sure. I don't need to be taught by some preacher in the pulpit, others say. Especially somebody like Keith. Jesus probably had a few more excuses <laughs> as to why he didn't need to be at the synagogue every Shabbat during his growing up years, don't you think? I know I'm making too much of this probably, but I think it's, it's amazing 
that we have a Messiah who was observant in his day. And we ought to have more people who claim to believe in this Messiah to do what Jesus did. WWDJ, JD, what is it? Anyway, look at this. He was brought up, he was brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord in Nazareth. Isn't that great? Think of his childhood. He customarily attended the synagogue on every Shabbat. And standing, I mean, he even followed when he got to this uh, particular point in Luke 4. He uh, stood and read the Isaiah passage, and he was seated when he explained the Isaiah passage. And I think we do draw a principle from this. I don't want to harp on this because it's kind of extraneous uh, to the passage. But I think it's there. Believers should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, just as Jesus did not forsake the assembly I mean, he could probably argue this. The religious system was corrupt. He didn't need the instruction, but he went to the place of prayer every week. He was there. Okay. Well, let's notice also that he's uh, an anointed Messiah, and this comes in the, uh, the key passage that he read. When he, when he got there, he came to Nazareth, and, and then in verse... Uh, 17, the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. I wonder why. And he was popular. At this point, he hadn't received so much uh, negative press, I guess. And so they had heard of him, and they said, well, here's a guest speaker. We'll hand him the, uh, the Bible, the, the scroll. And he opens up uh, to Isaiah. Now, it says here, he opened up the book and found the place where it was written. I'd like to add something here that I might be reading a little bit too much in the text once again, but it seems to me that they handed him a scroll that was opened up someplace and he turned to another. He found a different passage. Why? Because he's a purposeful sovereign. And he read this passage because he wanted them to know why he came and what his Messiah uh, ship would look like. And so he opened the place where it was written in Isaiah 61 and he says, and we read it before, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, and on and on. But notice in the next slide that we have a very pointed message that is given. Oh, I'm sorry. This slide talks about his anointing. Uh, and here's what he's doing. He says, uh, the Messiah will come. That's the reading. It says in Isaiah 61, the Messiah will come. And when he comes, he's going to evangelize the poor, liberate prisoners, give sight to the blind, Free the oppressed, proclaim the favorable year. Let's stop right there and look at this slide for just a few more moments. Because uh, this is the place where Jesus describes his already ministry. That is, he is come to do these things. Now, we normally take them very, very literally, don't we? And we can because he was there to share the good news. He was there to, to, to free people who were imprisoned. Although I can't think of too many examples of that, can you? Maybe freeing the uh, Gadarene demoniac from his shackles, although it seems to indicate that the, the demoniac was able to do that himself, right? Uh, but maybe Jesus made, the, made that possible. Uh, did he give sight to the blind? Yes, he literally gave sight to, the, sight to those who were blind. And did he free those who were beaten down? Yeah, but there again, we can maybe see a spiritual emphasis to this. Uh, did he proclaim the favorable year? That's what we want to say about what he was talking about. I think he was talking about the year of Jubilee, which I'll get to in a moment. But isn't it interesting here 
that he's evangelizing the poor. I, I ran across a, a, what I thought was a very, very good application spiritually to this particular passage. And guess what? You and I are still representing the Messiah. What is it that is causing some of these maladies? Uh, could it be sin? To preach the gospel to the poor, sin impoverishes both physically and spiritually, but it makes us poor. And the Messiah brings the good news to the poor. Poor in spirit or poor in bank account. He certainly gives good news because there's relief from both. What does he do about the brokenhearted, the crushed in spirit? It's sin that breaks hearts. And the Messiah has good news for the brokenhearted. I can't help but think about Duvalde and the crushed spirits, the broken hearts of parents and relatives in that town. And I've been praying, and I'm sure you have too, that it would be the work of the Spirit of God and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ that brings some kind of respite to those who are suffering so badly as a result of that. But Jesus can heal the brokenhearted. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but perhaps you've been through the trial, the, uh, the difficult time in your life, uh, that event that exceeds all events in your life when you have been at your lowest and you could feel your heart getting numb, broken. You know, people do die, I've, I've been told, people do die of a broken heart. They cannot overcome the pressure that comes as a result of a crushed spirit and a broken heart. But the Messiah has good news. We have good news for those in that condition. To proclaim liberty to the captives, well, sin makes people captive and enslaves them. And the Messiah can set them free. Again, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of those within this group who have suffered with addictive behavior and who have been captive, literally captive, to the thoughts and the physical manifestations of an addiction of some sort or another. I believe that uh, this speaks to that point. Freedom, liberty, release from whatever is holding people back. So sin makes people captive and enslaves them, but the Messiah comes to set them free. Now, what about recovery of sight to the blind? Do you think sin blinds people? Absolutely. There's a spiritual blindness, especially among the Jewish people with whom we work on a regular basis. But there is a blindness in part that has happened to Israel. And it's our duty in our particular ministry to shine that light and to uh, see the scales of blindness fall off. And Paul had to have that happen to him, remember? And I think there's a spiritual blindness that only we can help. Only we in the sense that we are the representatives of the Messiah. We are the ones who are carrying on his work until he returns. 
So again, I just, um, uh, this would be a good time to preach really hard about going out and witnessing. Well, I'm not into that because my view of God is that he orchestrates those things, but we don't pray for them. We need to pray more for opportunities. And, and then keep in mind, again, in my theology, I think it's Keith's as well, goes something like this. You can't say the right thing to the wrong person because it's God's job. But you can't say the wrong thing to the right person. <laughs> and if those two things are true, then the only thing that we can do wrong is not to say anything. So please, I, I implore you. I think Jesus, if he were here, I wish he were instead of me, I think he would say the same thing. He would say something like, I, this is the reason I came. I came to do these things, to give good news, to liberate people, to give sight to people, to free people. Uh, and you should do the same. Well, anyway, set at liberty those who are oppressed. Well, sin oppresses its victims. The word oppressed here is the word for beating somebody with a club. And it can be used literally. I'm sure people who have been in that kind of situation need to be liberated, right? And Jesus, although I, don't, I can't think of some specific instances, I'm sure he did that in his earthly ministry. But think of it spiritually as well. Do you feel beaten down? Have you ever felt that way? Like somebody is hitting you with a club and you just can't recover? I believe that spiritually speaking, sin oppresses its victims. It beats people down. And Messiah comes to bring, bring liberty to the oppressed. So I, I think all of those are instances in which um, the Messiah predicted in Isaiah, the Messiah will come and he's there standing in front of them. The Messiah has come. That's what he's saying. Isaiah says he will come. Jesus says he has come. I'm here. And um, we must keep in mind that the, the last part of Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 says what? Does anybody by any chance know? Nobody's going to say I'm going to read it just so that we make sure that we have it right. Because Jesus is quoting this passage. And he does something very unusual in that he stops right in the middle. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. Da, 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 da. And then he stops to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And what he doesn't read the day of the vengeance of our God. I believe this is intentional. And as one man has said, there are 2000 years in that comma because he's coming again to declare the vengeance of the Lord. He came as the lamb. He came as the healer. He came as the suffering servant. But he's coming again as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's coming again to make things right to deal with all of the injustices and the sin and the, the waywardness and the rebellion against him that has gone on for centuries and centuries. And he will deal with it uh, when he returns. So we look for the Lord to come and we as Christians look and say, Maranatha, and we sing songs about him coming. Even so come Lord Jesus, because it's gonna be a very positive thing for us. Not so positive for those uh, who reject him. All right, well, let's finish this passage by, when do I stop? Well, 
Keep going, keep going, keep going, yeah. You know, I've been in uh, four or five churches recently that don't have any clocks in the back. And I know it's by design. The pastor has done that. He's, he's made sure that, you know, he, nobody's going to stop him. Well, please notice here, he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Unbelievable. And they like him a lot because of the gracious words that are coming from his, falling from his lips, it says literally. And they were saying, but wait a minute. Isn't this Joseph or the son of Joseph? Isn't this this, this kid that we, we saw running around after his father hammering nails? For years and years, how is it possible that this one could be the prophet who was predicted uh, to come, the one to whom we are to give our attention? And so he recognizes that they're asking this question and they're doubting his authority. And so he said to them, I know, I know, I know. No doubt you're going to say, uh, physician, heal yourself. You know, do a miracle. And uh, if you're sick, you're the one who needs to do the miracle. Show us that you are the Messiah. Now, whatever you did in the Capernaum, I want you to do it here too, uh, so that you can show us. But instead of doing what we might expect him to do, which would be to reach out into the crowd and to heal someone, he doesn't do that. He says, not only are you upset because I haven't done the miracles of the Messiah around you, I shouldn't have to. He says, um, the Gentiles are included in my program. And he does it by talking about two incidents in the Old Testament. And very briefly, you probably know what they are. Uh, I think you can go to the next slide, maybe. Yeah, first of all, their response to the Messianic uh, message is that, well, he's just the son of Joseph and he's unable to heal his own life. And then Jesus is teaching about the Gentile mission. First, the proverb, which says prophets leave their own homes. They're not they don't have any honor in their own home, so they get out of town and they preach somewhere else. Well, that's the way it goes. If, if Keith went back to Westfield, New Jersey, nobody would listen to him, I promise you. But uh, Elijah was the widow in Zarephath, not this Zarephath that we have in New Jersey, but the one in, uh, uh, in the Gentile territory of uh, Lebanon or Syria. And uh, Elisha is the prophet who healed uh, the general who came down from Syria. You remember the accounts. Well, uh, both of these individuals were not part of the family of Israel particularly. And these folks were so uh, exclusivistic at the time that they couldn't handle the idea of Gentiles coming to faith. So Jesus reminds them of that very fact. And this is what causes the, uh, the rage uh, and the attempted murder pushing him down this, the brow of the hill. All right, well, um, gee, I don't know what else to say to you. I think I'm about out of steam here, but this irrational opposition happens today. I can give the, the most heartwarming, gracious message to some of my uh, ultra-Orthodox acquaintances or friends. And even though uh, Jesus spoke gracious words, he was the rejected Messiah. When it shows that he's a, a common human uh, rabbi, carpenter's son, they're rejecting his deity. When you say that he's done no healings, it's a rejection of what he has already been doing in Capernaum. 
And when you talk about Gentile outreach and bringing other people, the jealousy just begins to rage within them. And they say, uh, come to the brow of the hill. I want you to notice just one or two more things. Jesus was in charge of this whole affair. He's in control. Do you think he would allow them to lead him to the brow of the hill? Uh, uh, if it was his time. I think he's illustrating something because another crowd led him out of the town to another place called the, uh, the uh, Golgotha. He walked right through the ones in Nazareth. I get the picture of some kind of a Matrix movie where, you know, you have all, everybody standing still and then there's movement in the middle and he walks right through. I don't know how it happened. There's no way of telling, but he did it several times, by the way, in the Gospels. But it wasn't his time. It wasn't his time. But the next group that led him out, it was his time. He allowed them to lead him out to Golgotha and he died fulfilling all, all of this. And he's coming again. In the meantime, we are to fulfill what we have been given. Uh, we're to do what he has done as much as it is possible for us to do so. But he's coming back. And when he does, he will, uh, he will, as I said, make all things right. And that's why we, we do believe that the Messiah definitely will come. Uh, next slide. Next slide, yeah. He escaped because the time was not right. He graciously ministered in Israel because the time for his wrath was future. Now the last slide. This is probably self-evident by the time we finish, but let me just read through these and then we'll go home. Maybe you could jot them down or think about them at least. We should be controlled by the Spirit. We can be when we submit to Him and when we confess our sins. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness and He fills us and He wants to use us. We should be faithful in worship. We are anointed with knowledge to discern the truth of God, 1 John 2. And we are called, I believe we are called, without getting the cart before the horse, we are called to minister to the spiritual poverty, captivity, and blindness and oppression that exists all around us. Because in so doing, we are demonstrating the love and the graciousness of Jesus, and many will come to faith as a result. All right, I think I'm done. This is where in the classroom we stop and we say, okay, we're open for questions, and then we go for another hour. <laughs> but I guess you probably don't want to do that today, and maybe I don't either. Let me pray. Our Father, we're so thankful for your uh, tender mercies toward us. Uh, we're thankful that you, uh, through someone, spoke words of grace to us. And then we discovered that those words of grace were actually coming from the Savior of the world. And because of grace, we have forgiveness. Because of grace, we have salvation. So, Father, I thank you for the... Um, the saving grace, the sustaining grace. I thank you for the in, encouraging and enabling grace that comes to us by the Spirit of God within us. I pray for each one of these dear people. I pray that uh, the message from Jesus in the synagogue, his 
first and pointed message uh, would be taken to heart and somehow be used uh, in each life uh, who is here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me, please? I trust that you have been encouraged and blessed by the reading and the teaching from the Word of the Lord, but also I trust and pray that we have all been challenged, for we have been reminded so powerfully of the um, mission that Jesus came to fulfill, and that mission is now our message, our message to bring. And so may we be encouraged yet also challenged uh, this coming week that would reflect on what we were reminded of this morning and all that Jesus came to do, and that we now have been entrusted with that gospel of good news, right? Good news, the freedom that people can have, the freedom only in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, bless us as we leave this place. May we be encouraged, but also challenged, Lord. May we continue to stay in your word and to remain uh, faithful to the mission that you have called us on until you return, and that we would always proclaim that message. Provide those divine appointments, Lord. May we be ready and uh, prepared to represent you well and to share the good news of Jesus Christ with all. And we just pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's go in peace and confidence, praising the Lord.